Are we ready? Should we start? It's already uh, a little over time. Um, welcome uh, to uh, the Bookworm for our evening to discuss the new book, Chinese Characters, with two of the writers whose work is featured in it. Um, I won't bore you with a long introduction because I think you're probably here because you know uh, that you want to listen uh, to Ian and Christina. Uh, so we're going to get started really quickly. I'll just say uh, in as quick a time as possible some biographical notes. Ian Johnson first came to China in 1984 to study at Beida. Uh, he was correspondent here for uh, the Sun newspaper from Baltimore from 94 to 2001. Uh, and then at the Wall Street Journal covering economics, society, uh, economics and society, and he was bureau chief. Um, also winning 2001 Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of a certain illegal cult. Um, and then he left China after evil, that. Evil cult, actually. <laughs> An evil cult. He left China for some reason and uh, stayed away <laughs> until 2009. Uh, um, when he returned with the journal. Uh, right now, since 2010, he splits his time between his home in Berlin and Beijing. Uh, and in Beijing, he's with the New York Times Bureau. And he writes for a number of other publications, including the New York Review of Books. Christina, um, who uh, actually told me her real bio was that her journalism <laughs> career is preparing... <laughs> her for her next likely career step, a home nursing assistant, or perhaps a babysitter. <laughs> those of you who are journalists, <laughs> be aware. Comment on the pay scale. <laughs> In seriousness, she's a contributing editor at Foreign Policy Magazine and writes for a number of US publications, including The Atlantic, New York Times, Style Magazine, The New Republic, uh, Bloomberg Businessweek, Science, Scientific American. She does quite a bit of reporting on science. Um, and she most recently profiled Ma Jun, the famous environmental uh, activist, who was named number one in Fast Company Magazine's 2012 list of most creative people in business. And that is somehow connected with your chapter. Let's get straight on to it. Um, this book, um, how did it come about, Ian? Chinese well, characters, what's the aim of it? How did it come about? It came about, the, one of the editors of the book, uh, Jeff Wasserstrom from the University of California at Irvine, um, was talking to some people about perceptions of China and how maybe our perceptions are skewed by some of these big picture books that keep coming out about China, the next superpower, the next enemy, or this or that, and that it would be a really good idea to get some grassroots, on-the-ground reporting of individuals um, because really one of the maybe underlying stories of the past 30 years is the rise of the individual in China and that people are really doing their own things. There's so many different uh, people um, in different, engaged in different activities um, that it would be good just to show the diversity of China. So the idea was also to get a different writer for each chapter. So I don't know exactly how many chapters there are, but there's 15-odd uh, people who contributed to this. Um, and I think another idea was that he wanted people who were in different professions. So there are some journalists like us, but then there are also academics who were writing pieces as well. And Jeff is a big believer in bridging academia and journalism um, in, in both directions. And so I think this book was an effort to do that as well. And so the idea is that each chapter is basically about a person. Mostly, yeah. I believe it's almost all like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's get straight into your chapter, Ian, and I'll bring you in in a little bit, uh, Christina. Uh, so you, your chapter is um, 
you know, why don't you just get straight into it and read the first part of your chapter? Okay. Would, th would that work? Yeah. I mean, I'll uh, just basically, I've uh, had a long-standing interest in Chinese religion, and um, it's a focus of my research and writing right now. And uh, so I thought it would be interesting, especially to write something on <coughs> China's indigenous religion, Taoism. So this is a profile of a Taoist uh, priest whom I met uh, at Hengshan near Datong, the northern peak in the Taoist cosmology, uh, the Beiyue. Uh, and so the title is, of the chapter is The North Peak. So, um, the voluntary insurance at the entrance had cost just two yuan, about 35 cents, but I had been fleeced all the way from Beijing, and somehow this was the final straw. Why did everything have to be so crass and commercialized? I whined to myself. I knew the answers, all the nuanced reasons why so many religious sites in China had been reduced to a carnival, but was in too foul a mood to be rational. The view didn't help either. Once one of Taoism's holiest mountains, Mount Hung in Shanxi province, was a denuded wreck, seeming to consist of nothing but broken slate. I grumbled epitaphs as I climbed the steep trail, wondering why I had bothered to come. Then he appeared on the ridge above me, like something out of a Chinese kung fu thriller. A Taoist priest clad in a blue robe, white breeches, his hair up on his head in a bun. I hesitated for a second. He was moving so quickly that he was almost gone before I could blurt out, Master, have you seen the priest known as Mysterious Forest? He stopped, looked at me, and said the priest had moved on. I didn't really care about Mysterious Forest. I had come to Mount Hung to meet Taoists, and here was one. I told him I was researching Taoism and asked if he knew anything about the mountain. He didn't answer, but immediately strode down the slate slope to my path, oblivious of the mini landslide he was causing. I can help you, he said, turning on his heel. Follow me. I rushed to catch up, trying not to let on that I was in untaoist-like bad shape, barely able to keep up with this man who must have been 20 years my senior. As we walked, it felt like cantering. He kept looking back and talking, as if his steady stream of chatter could lasso and draw me toward him. Have you noticed that Taoism has a lot of temples to Lao Tzu? Yes, sure, I said. He's the religion's founder and wrote the Tao Te Ching, which is a great work. Correct. Then tell me, what is the second greatest work of Taoism? The Zhuangzi. It has many colorful stories and is maybe even more profound than the Tao Te Ching. Exactly. Well put. It is even better than the Tao Te Ching. It is better. It is much better. But have you ever noticed that there are no temples to Zhuangzi? There are hundreds of temples to Laozi, but not one to Zhuangzi. Why is that? I shook my head. Both Laozi and Zhuangzi were mythical figures. Who knew why Laozi got all the incense burned in his name and Zhuangzi only got a book named after him? So here's my idea, he said, stopping at a bend and locking his eyes on mine. We build a temple to Zhuangzi, you and I. We have met here on this road. It is fate. Foreigners can fund it. It will be China's first temple to Zhuangzi. My heart began to sink. Not another con. It will be cheap, he said, continuing. Zhuangzi is from my hometown in Henan province. I know people there, and we can get the land for free. The gate receipts will pay back the investors. 
have you heard this before? Uh, <laughs> the officials are very interested. Another cockamamie scheme. No wonder Taoists have a reputation for being slippery. I argued to myself that I was being unfair. Then I got a grip. No, I wasn't being unfair. And I started to walk ahead quickly. I needed to find some real Taoists and ditch this guy. But he followed me, talking incessantly as I tried to block out his voice. It's the 21st century. It's the century of Zhuangzi. Last century... <laughs> Last century was Lao Tzu's century. This is Zhuangzi's. Shut up, shut up, I countered in my in loud internal voice. Where can I find a real Taoist? <laughs> so that's the beginning of the That is simply delightful, and anyone who's spent longer than about three minutes in China will no doubt recognize your sentiments at that point. Yeah, it got better after that. More hopeful. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, it does get better. Um, before we move on to Christina, I, I just want to ask you one particular question about your interest in religion. You've done a lot of writing on religion, aside from this chapter. Um, and it's something that I find interesting, because I myself am generally quite repulsed by religion uh, in China. Uh, one of the reasons I uh, came to China, I think, was because I, I'd been so traumatized by Christian national education in apartheid South Africa that I was delighted to come to a completely a-religious country. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which, <laughs> and <laughs> you, you obviously come and your interest in religion in China is, uh, is quite deep and you've been following it for a long time. W what for you is the, the draw? Well, I think uh, religion is one of the, obviously it's one of the fundamental human drives. It doesn't mean everyone's religious, of course, but uh, a lot of people are. And I think it's something that has been underreported, uh, undercovered, if you will, or under, sort of misunderstood in China. Um, a lot of people, when they think of religion in China, they think of a certain Buddhist monk who comes from a high plateau in China and now lives in India. No, the Dalai Lama, they maybe think of the Dalai Lama, or they think of house churches, or they think of some sort of oppression story. But there's actually a lot going on in China. And China saw an incredible assault on religion in the 20th century, similar to the assault on religion, say, in Turkey under the Kemalists. And religion was one of the whipping boys for China's century of humiliation. Basically, all most Chinese religious practice was deemed superstitious. Um, and it was only in the early 80s with the reform and opening that religion sort of made a bit of a comeback. So, uh, and since then, there's been sort of a boom in religion, although we don't see it so much in Beijing. Beijing's a really terrible place in a way to look at China because it's so unusual. It's so atypical. But the number of places of worship in China have increased uh, a huge by a huge number. And if you travel through the countryside, you can't help but see the number of temples, churches, um, and in certain parts of China, mosques that have been built over the past uh, 30 years. Just one more quick addition to that question before we move on to Christina. Uh, one of the things you did when after you left China was uh, you began to, uh, you were living in Europe and you, you began to research um, uh, radical Islam, and you wrote a book called The Mosque in Munich, which is a, a, a study of essentially how um, radical Islam uh, came to uh, the form that we think of it today. Is that correct? Yeah. That, did, did that influence your, your, the way you approach religion in China, looking at uh, Islam in Europe? 
And that's well, almost, maybe almost the other way around. I, I got interested in, in religion in China, um, especially in the 90s, and I worked for a, a nonprofit that was involved with uh, looking at uh, helping Taoist temples uh, rebuild. So when I got to Europe, I uh, was very interested in, in how religion was playing out there. So uh, certainly it's, I've been interested in religion in different parts of the world. Christina, let's move on to you, and then we can, uh, we'll quickly take this to a Q&A after uh, sure. uh, the initial. Um, so you have a very different chapter, kind of chapter in this book. Uh, you know, it starts off, it's, it's a road trip. Um, uh, you're looking at a man who uh, is driving towards the source of the Yangtze. Uh, it, can you tell us about him and, and what he's trying to do? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, my chapter is a profile of Yang Yong, who's an environmentalist born in the late 1960s uh, outside of Chengdu. And he sort of grew up in a very interesting time. Um, you know, obviously his childhood was quite hard, but then he um, went to university and worked uh, as a sort of a risk assessment geologist for the government for several years. And he got fed up with how when he said something like, you know what, there's going to be a lot of erosion, and if we build a road here, we're going to have a problem. He said, no, no, that's not the answer we want. Um, so he took it upon himself to sort of uh, quit working for the government and is basically a freelance um, geologist partnering with various, um, I mean, he does some work with different organizations in the U.S. or institutes. And um, the North South Water Transfer Project, which probably a lot of the folks in this audience have heard of, is one of the biggest... Um, attempts to move water from the south of China, which is, has relatively more water to the north, which is relatively um, water scarce. And he took it upon himself to investigate the likelihood that the third wing of the, north, of the South North Water Transfer Project in West China, whether or not it was actually feasible, because he, from his own experience, had seen the government say, you know what, this is the answer we want. We have risk assessors, but their job is not actually to assess risk. And he thought, you know, this is a huge undertaking, and someone needs to see if it's really going to work. So over the course of about three years, he took four long road trips, um, him and a couple other geologists, um, out to different points where the the um, the project was going to be built and looked at things like how much snowfall there was, um, you know, how much um, sediment or possible erosion there was at different times of the year. One of the things he found is part of the, the Yangtze is frozen in winter and the plans hadn't accounted for that. So obviously if you're diverting water and the water's frozen... You're going to have a problem. So he, so the beginning of it is is just sort of him on one of these journeys where he's actually driving along the frozen a frozen part of the river, and the um, the SUV that he's traveling in it <laughs> falls through the river at one point, and um, you know they had uh, they actually have the two cars, and so one of them pulls him out. But it's just this. I mean, he's really putting himself on the line in every way, but feels like this is sort of something that's important to do. So he's, he's an example of, I think, someone who, um, you know, sort of like what Ian said, the rise of the individual, the sense that, you know, he feels somebody needs to do this work, and who better but him. And, um, you know, what, he's, what he does as, a, as an individual is quite astonishing, but I think he's also representative of growing interest in the environment and the growing willingness in some spaces that aren't. Um, as politically sensitive as maybe some of what Ian is looking at, has looked at um, with Falun Gong um, to, to stand up for what they think is, is important and to have a voice. 
So, I mean, do you think the, the book itself, I mean, and uh, I don't know how much of your fellow contributors' mm -hmm. uh, chapters you've read yet, but I mean, do you think the book itself has a, a particular angle on looking at the rise of the individual in China? That's a good question. Um, or maybe not, because nobody's answering it. Yeah, I'm trying to think, how, how would you answer that? Um, I mean, is this I mean, book different from the book that if you'd set out to do the same thing 20 years ago, how different would it have been? Well... I think people have more... Agency, maybe. Can you use that word? Yeah, I was exactly going to say agency. <laughs> uh, no, I think people are able to affect change more than they were able to. And I mean, one of the things this guy, he's got his whole, his whole story about this priest. I don't want to you know, give it away, but... Uh, he's actually quite instrumental in rebuilding this temple. Um, and there are more and more, when you actually see what people have coming out of this horrible you know, cultural revolution and all that, the th first 30 years, um, what people have been able to achieve on an individual level that has a collective impact, of course. It's, it's ultimately the story of the rise of China, uh, the recovery of China after this, these traumas. But... Um, but it was, it's been done by a lot of people acting on their own, not necessarily in concert with each other or, you know, aware or under some great leader, you know. So I think that's right. I, I think maybe one trend that you see in a couple chapters, though, is, is that there is more access to information in the outside world, the world outside China now than there would have been 30 years ago. And in some cases, I mean, Yang Yang is an example. I mean, in, not exactly, but in some ways, he's modeling self after what he thinks John Muir did. I mean, that there's consciously taking examples of people that they've read John about Muir and heard is about. The American, the American right? Do you exactly. Explain? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, we in it. I'm obviously an American, but um, you know, we think now of conservation. You know, this isn't an idea that existed forever, and uh, you know, the 1850s, right? Uh, the, the Wild West, you know, was was a thing in America, and by the you know a few decades later, that land was basically had been, um, you know, it was you know people owned it. It wasn't it wasn't the Wild West anymore. And you begin to have timber shortages in the eastern United States. Timber was like the oil of its time. It was the thing you needed if you wanted to build more cities. Um, you had less fish, you know, you had people like Teddy Roosevelt who were concerned about the buffalo, um, this species that to them signified something great and wild about America that had been bountiful and were now endangered. And so you had this change of consciousness where people realize these things we've taken for granted are becoming scarce, and they're becoming scarce because of what we do. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt created the national parks and John Muir was, was one of the people who created a sort of um, spiritual, intellectual um, underpinnings for, was one of the people who created a conversation around the spiritual, intellectual underpinnings for conservation and national parks in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I mean, whenever I, I mean, very often when I've traveled to different parts of China to ask to interview different environmentalists who are working on all sorts of causes, um, you know, pollution, all sorts of things, they often ask me about Rachel Carson or, you know, American heroes, and they're aware of these people. And I think um, that's accelerated their interest in trying to want to do something. Okay. I'm going to ask Ian one more question, and then I, I, I would ask you now to start thinking of questions. Uh, we'll take questions from the floor after my last uh, one for Ian. And I'd just like to ask about Mengzi and Laozi. You know, so, uh, so why is the situation like this? Because it seems to me that 
uh, a lot of, especially younger sort of arty Chinese, Wen um, you know, Lao Tzu is the uncool, if, if you want to be cool, uh, Lao Tzu is not your guy, you know, he doesn't have the coolest stories, um, but it is very true that uh, Meng Tzu was just, has never had the same position. What, 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 can you, in, you know, two minutes, uh, explain to us, you know, several hundreds of years of religious history of how this came about. <laughs> so, well, yeah, Zhuangzi and Lao Tzu. Uh, Zhuangzi, sorry, yeah. what did I say? Meng Tzu, uh, Zhuangzi. Yeah, I lo- well, Lao Tzu was the, I, I said it in shorthand in, in the, the thing, I said he's the founder of the, he isn't really the founder of the religion. There was Lao Tzu, was a, you know, this book was written or compiled 500 uh, BCE and uh, around uh, the you know turn of the millennium, uh, there was religious Taoism. Taoism as a religion was formed by this uh, in Sichuan by this guy Zhang Daoling, and he took Lao Tzu as a religious as a as a religious figure and somebody who had been read um, and and for, for five hundred years or more before was turned into a religious figure and you had people chanting the Tao Te Ching as a religious text. And sort of from that time onwards, Lao Tzu has been a, has been venerated as a, as a, a god uh, in, in the Taoist pantheon. Whereas Zhuangzi just remained uh, a book that people read and Taoists read it, but uh, it wasn't anything, You'll, you will never see a statue really to Zhuangzi, I don't think ever, anywhere. Uh, in a Taoist temple. It's just something that people will read, one of the texts. It's in the Taoist canon, uh, the Taozang, which is the, a collection of Taoist works, about 1,400 volumes. It's one of the books in the in the Taoist canon, but it's not uh, primary by any means. Okay. Thank you. Now, uh, we have a huge range of subjects you can ask about, so go wild. Yeah, just a factual question. Um, I'm wondering what the size of uh, China's Taoist community is. Um, how big is it relative to other faith communities in China, like Buddhism and Christianity? Where is it concentrated in in the country? And finally, if my memory serves me correctly, you wrote an article in the New York Times about a Taoist religious center in Zhengzhou, I in, think. Uh, near Nanjing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that place still operating? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, it's of the five official religions, religious groups in China. So that would be Buddhism, uh, Taoism, Islam, and then Christianity, for administrative purposes, is divided into two: Catholicism and Protestantism. So these are the five re- official religions. Taoism is uh, almost certainly, well, I would say the smallest, or maybe Catholicism is smaller, but Taoism has always been smaller than uh, Buddhism uh, historically. Um, and the total number of clergy, it's hard to say. Traditionally, Taoism has not been... Traditionally, Taoist practitioners have lived in the community and provide ser- provided services to people who needed it, like for a funeral, things like that. Uh, there was a reform movement uh, that tried to emulate uh, Buddhism. Uh, 
in the Yuan dynasty, and so they began to have monasteries and the idea of a celibate clergy trying to imitating Buddhism, essentially. Uh, that's more prominent in the north, and that's what a lot of people think of when they think of real Taoism. They think of a big monastery with people living like Buddhists, but actually most Buddhist uh, Taoist practitioners are still uh, living in the community, providing especially funeral services and stuff like that. Um, so it's hard to say what the total number of clergy is. Um, places of worship have, I don't know, there's roughly about 5,000 in China. And followers, it's very hard to say because it's not a religion like uh, Christianity where you go to a church and you register and you, you know. Uh, but there are more churches, for example, in Beijing than Taoist temples. I don't know if that gives you, you know, some sort of an indication, at least in a big city like Beijing. Uh, and the place you mentioned was is Maoshan uh, near Nanjing, and it's um, still very functioning. It's one of the important uh, mountains in Taoism. So, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Thank you. Another question? Um, I'm John. Uh, I want to ask, so any book about individuals in China and the individual in China specifically, is uh, clearly going to have some theme of how the individual deals with the state. Um, and I'm sure each of the individuals in your book deal with the state and the power of the state in different ways. But I was wondering uh, what sort of common threads you could discern um, from reading the book and from writing about these individuals. Jeremy, you should take yeah, well, it. You take it. <laughs> you take the difficult the question. Moderator. You take the difficult question, Christina. <laughs> You know, the thing is, is to be honest, we, we, I mean, I read these articles piecemeal as, as Jeff sort of worked on them, so I didn't, I mean, I, I haven't read it with that thought in mind um, to be able to sort of give you a good answer about sort of what, what is the common thread and in terms of how they deal with the state. Do you have a sense of Well, I, um, overall, I think a lot of the people ignore or bypass the state when possible. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one thing. I don't want to say um, subversive or something like that. Not, they're not, I don't think anybody, anybody here, is, there's no dissidents, there's no like big figures like that in, in, the, uh, in, in the book or people who are overtly challenging the state or standing up to the state or, you know. But they're all people in some ways who are standing up or for their beliefs, in which some, in sometimes they do challenge the government. Uh, my... Taoist uh, priest uh, has his story of not doing exactly what was expected of him after the Cultural Revolution, um, and your your fellow also. Uh, so I think those are, and it's a common theme in China that people tend to not ignore the state, but only rather ask for forgiveness rather than permission, and go ahead and do stuff, and then if it's not right, back I think, later. I think one chapter that um, that speaks in an interesting way to the question of the individual and the state would be Evan Osnos's chapter, The New Generation's Neocon Nationalists. He profiles a young nationalist who, over the internet, seems um, like a fiery, difficult, terrible human being, um, but in person is, is a very sort of gentle, interested person, not gentle, but a person who, who's interested and engaged, happy to meet with a foreign correspondent, and exactly the opposite of what the stereotype of a Chinese nationalist might be. And, you know, nationalism 
doesn't necessarily mean standing up for the state, although it's part of it. It's standing up for some idea of what China is. And I think that chapter speaks to some of the contradictions in the relationship between an individual, the state, and the notion of China. Let's take another question over there in the middle. Thank you. Um, in fact, I have two questions. Do you, um, do you think there is a clear direction in all this changing and fast changing that we witness in China? And second, China is changing very fast at all levels. Is there any, should we not also look at what is not changing in China? There are some parts of China that remains the same or, or resist to change. Would you like to take that, Ian? Um, yeah, I mean, the, okay, the subtitle, you know, fast changing, and it's almost like you have to get the idea that China's changing so fast. <laughs> um, otherwise, you're not... Uh, going to sell any books. You're not going <laughs> to... Be, gonna be, Everything uh, is the same. <laughs> it's all... But, uh, no, but I think, you're, I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot of... There are a lot of things that there, there are changes, but they're sometimes reasserting patterns of behavior from the past uh, that existed before the state became so powerful in the first 30 years of, of the communist uh, rule. And so there's been sort of a, a, a return or backing off to, uh, to, to patterns. Um, but I think also when we think of these characters and sort of going back to the earlier question on individuals, I think China has been often a very uh, individualistic, uh, anarchic place in a way. We're not, you know, the, the expression, the sky is high, the emperor is far away. I mean, that didn't get, that wasn't coined a couple, in the Deng era, right? It was coined a lot earlier. So this idea that you only really listen to things and follow things when you really have to or when the, the government's, you know, really cracking the whip, but otherwise you kind of, you know, just go through life following your own whims and fancies. So uh, maybe that's a, an unchanging thing. I, if I may add a comment, I think, I mean, we're witnessing right now is politically uh, something that isn't changing that really should change, which is that the, the government, I mean, this disappearing Xi Jinping, I mean, this is totally ridiculous. The playbook is straight from Stalin. I, you know? right. <laughs> I mean, it's the 21st century, you know? but, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I mean, I think it's a, this is a very crude division, but I mean, I think it's easy to say that things that you can see in China, buildings, fashions, change quickly, but a lot of things that you can't see, you know, habits, the importance of connections, family connections, other kind of guanxi connections, change much more slowly or even don't change. Um, and I think one chapter that is really a, um, a, an interesting one maybe for questions like that would be Shujin Eberlin's Another Swimmer. She is a writer who now lives in Boston. She grew up uh, in Chongqing uh, during the Cultural Revolution, and, and one of her um, one of her siblings drowned in the river, and it's this very interesting personal meditation. In some ways, it's unlike a lot of the other chapters, but um, I think it, it, in some ways, gets at the heart of habits of mind and what changes and doesn't change. You know, from someone who uh, personally lives through so many different changes in China, so I, I would recommend that chapter in any case, but especially along those themes. Let's take another question. This is a question about the book in general. 
for um, you contributors that have wrote about, have written about, and have been in China a long time. Were there any other chapters that were particularly a revelation to you that you read them and say, wow, I never would have thought it was like that? Or have you been here so long that you have seen it all? You've seen it all. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing Jeremy's is changing. Nothing is it. new. China, the unchanging giant. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. All right. Next question. No. no uh, would you, wait, 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 wait. Let's this question. We're, we're stalling, so we can You're looking through, through the table it. of contents. <laughs> Do you want to think about that a little bit? And, and let's take another question, and I'll circle back to it. I think that's good. We'll try. Okay, let's take another question. Here we go. So, question. so this is a question about the commercialism you mentioned just now. Uh, and uh, have you thought about the, the relationship between the commercialism and uh, the religions in nowadays world? I think it's not only for China, but also generally for the whole world. Do you make any comparison in the States or in Europe and also in China? And it's kind of an inevitable past. Uh, after uh, in the post-industrialization era, have you thought about that? Um, the commercialization, yeah, I think the there are parallels to other parts of the world. Of course, commercialization. Um, I often I spend quite a bit of time in Germany, and and, and a lot of the big cathedrals are, are very commercialized. And while they don't. Uh, I don't think any of them in Germany, but in some countries they do charge a mission, uh, but the whole area around them are often just packed with people selling postcards and cameras, and if you go to the Cologne Cathedral, that it's sort of on this uh, uh, area, which is just horrible, and it's just like one commercial, tawdry commercial place after another. Um, I think Chinese religious sites are under more pressure because they, traditionally, the big temples finance themselves um, often by owning land and then renting the land out or growing things and selling it. And after 49, they lost all their property. So then they had to find a way to make, to support these monks or, or, or nuns, uh, priests who were living there. And that, in the Mao era, didn't work that much, but then afterwards they turned to tourism and then local officials push tourism because it's another industry. They can also skim off money, skim off the gate, some of the gate receipts. Um, and so it's sort of this win-win situation. Uh, they also get money and they can rebuild the temples that have been destroyed, but it kind of destroys the atmosphere. But, but they're under a lot more pressure maybe because they're not really autonomous. The people who are running them are also under some they have some kind of a close relationship with the local government, and so it's hard for them to say no. I don't want to have any a, a ticket. A lot of them don't want tickets, but they're pushed to have ticket uh, sales for the for the temples. So it's it is a real it is a real pressure, but it's not unique to China by any means, like you say. I appreciate the answer from the perspective of the temple or from the church, but I think my uh, my question or my concern is about. Uh, Know, from the perspective of average person, how they can balance the belief system and their commercialism in, in their own mind. Well, in, okay, in, in, that, in that sense, the commercialization of society 
for a lot of people, explicitly pushes them into toward religion because there's this feeling. I mean, you you read it or hear about it all the time in China that there's no that there's a lack of 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 morality and that people don't have a bottom line. You know that that term that people talk about in China all the time. Um, this moral crisis that that people refer to. I mean, Chinese people talk about it all the time in the in the internet and so on. And a lot of people turn to religion or some kind of spiritual life for for an answer and i think that helps account for the huge increase in religious life in the past uh, decade or two a couple of decades especially since the 90s and 2000s sure have we got another question um my name is wayne uh there's kind of a running joke now that every journalist in china can't leave without writing a book and uh i mean as we see more and more books come out how can journalists kind of differentiate uh, their books from one another. I mean, you know, you're getting to a point where it's like, oh, this was my this was my experience in China. These are my observations. But you know, what what sort of how can how can people do something different? Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? You're you're working on a book. Um. If I may put it to the two of you, don't you think the answer is that you should just write a good book instead of a bad book? <laughs> I mean, you're yeah. so radical, Jeremy. <laughs> I mean, China you so might get va- kicked out. <laughs> China is so vast. I mean, how can one run out of interesting topics in this country? I mean, there's more going that. on in you know the square kilometer around here. More dodgy things going on that would be, make fascinating stories than you could find in you know two years of plodding around Germany, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> isn't there? Or maybe no. <laughs> uh, Well, yeah. I know. I think I, to. To get to your question, I think the um, the first phase, at least in the west of Western books, you know, China was closed off for so long. Anybody who got into China could come back and write a book. I was in China for six days. Wow, okay, you know, and you wrote you know, the titles were always the Chinese. You know, <laughs> so it's like I spent a year in China. I didn't meet any Chinese people except my IE and driver, and then I wrote a book called The Chinese. And so it was like, it's like the arrogance of being here for so little time. Then you just dare to write these books, and you can see them. You know, in the, in the library here, there's all the all the journalists who came here wrote books, mostly rehashing their articles, and then just sort of stringing them together and writing. And then I think now in the past um, ten or fifteen years, there's so many people who come to China. You can't really write a book like that. So that you have these thematic books, uh, or looking at one specific uh, part of China. Um, but the actual truth of the matter is that almost from what uh, people in the publishing industry in the U.S. at least tell me that almost no book on China has really sold to any degree, except for a, a couple of books, primarily Peter Hessler's books. As the as <laughs> the, the category of Peter Hessler, yeah, yeah, books. the category, the Peter Hessler <laughs> is a great exception. But almost all the other books have not even earned back their advances, if that means anything, if you know what I mean by that. So yeah, so um, they publishers are not. So I talked to this one agent uh, when I was in New York in June, and he said to me, "Why don't you write a book like in the 1970s when people went to the Soviet Union and they came back?" And there was this guy, you know, Hedrick Smith wrote a book called "The Russians." He said, "Why don't you write a book called The Chinese and tell us what the Chinese think?" And I thought, "Oh my God, we've gone all the way now back to <laughs> writing the book about here. Here's what 1.3 billion people think collectively, and I'll in." 200 pages or something. <laughs> uh, so, uh. Yeah, and, and Christine, can we return to the theme of Peter Hessler, since he is, in fact, a, a contributor? And, and uh, the way Jeff told the story, he was also, it was a road trip with Peter Hessler at which the, uh, during which the, book was con- the idea for the book was conceived. Uh, 
why do Peter Hessler's books, uh, why are they so popular, do you think, the two of you? Well, part of that answer is what you just said before. He wrote damn good books. I mean, he's oh, the books are good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that. I mean, I, I, you know. Is there something else? I, I think. I mean, did he hit a certain moment in America, looking at China, a certain moment in the West's understanding of China? Oh, well, aside I th- from. Yeah, I mean, I know. think I think a couple things. I mean, he he really is. Um, just a masterful writer, and so it's different. It's different than just being a journalist. I mean, he's really an extraordinary writer. And you know, for those of us who, in, in super dork fashion, go back through and like make little pencil marks about how this leads to that. I mean, there, there's so much care and attention in the writing. Um, so that's magic. To me, I think there's also, um, you know, China's so big, it's so vast, these themes are all so heavy, whether they're good or bad, but it's really funny, and I think that's something that, especially when you see headlines, Xi Jinping, he's missing, you know, environmental spill, changing of the party congress, Bo Shalai, I mean, none of this is funny, right? And at the end of the day, why are you going to spend a long time with something unless you're actually enjoying it? So I think, you know, just just the, the humor that he brought out in it, and I think, um, you know, someone said to me this once, and I think it's true, that sometimes when you're reading Peter Hessler, you forget that you're reading about China, you're just reading about life. You know, I mean, that these people have their struggles and they're worried about how to break something to someone else. Or He has this one very funny scene in Rivertown, well, several scenes, where Miss O, I think, is this woman in her 40s or 50s, and she has some dead-end job, and she sends him love letters, and he's trying, you know, this American guy in his late 20s, trying to figure out how to not piss off Miss O. And it's, you know, I mean, it's it's... It's about China and the circumstance and recognitions of opportunities, but it's also about this sort of, this sort of ridiculous love—not love scenario, but but ridiculous courtship scenario. And I think that's fun. And the other thing I've been thinking about recently, and you guys can shoot me down if you if you disagree with this, but I think with a lot of the recent news cycles, and one of the reasons there's so much anger about things like the Ferrari crashes of the sons of you know top officials is is now there's increasingly a recognition that a lot of your ability to do things even like buy a home depends on how much money or guanxi your parents have and i think there feels like you know i'm channeling the opinions of friends in Beijing and other major cities who have college education, so maybe I'm speaking for a swath of China, but it feels like there's less social mobility and less opportunity than there was in the early 2000s or the 1990s. The explosive sense of, you know, work hard, get an education, you can be everyone. And I think Peter Hessler really tapped into that moment. And that's such an appealing idea to a Chinese person, an American person, any reader. This sort of, you know, your life totally transforms because you meet someone on the side of the road and they had an idea. And, you know, that's that's just a fun thing to read about and and an interesting space to inhabit. Going on from that, if I can switch it a little bit, uh, Peter Hessel also recently said, I think he and his wife, Leslie Chang, who's also a contributor to this book, are moving to Egypt. And uh, uh, he talked about learning Arabic and <clears throat> immersing himself in a new culture. Ian, you're someone who's done something that is a little unusual in the sense that you've kind of been a China guy and then you went away and became... A Muslim terrorist guy, and then you came back. Some terrorists. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can blend. You could never guess. That's <laughs> my secret. Um, uh, how how easy is it to get pigeonholed as a writer ab- uh, about China specifically? 
Well, I think that's that's always a risk for journalists. Um, that, especially when you have you invest so much time in a country like China, um, that it's hard to go off and uh, do something else. I think that's why Peter. Uh, know him pretty well. I mean, he spent, th he wrote three books on China, and I think he, he will definitely come back to China and wants to uh, write more about China, um, but he wanted to just get a pr different perspective. And I I think that's a good idea. When I, I remember in the, in the 1990s, when I was here as a journalist, uh, one of my friends was the LA Times correspondent, Roan Tempest. And Roan had been in India before coming to China. And when people would say, well, China, you know, it's really got all these problems and all that. And he would say, well, you know, you should really see India because this is a place with like really serious problems and a quasi dysfunctional government. And it isn't lifting anybody or very slowly, only really slowly lifting people out of poverty. They can hardly build roads. The trains are crappy. Etc. So there aren't flights to. This is, of course, we're talking 20, 15 plus years ago, but so India, India, no things. <laughs> but but in, no, in, I mean India has changed quite a bit. But I, I think uh, he, it was valuable to hear that and to uh, to see that there are other parts of the world. And we we tend to think when we come to China and are dealing with China that everything here is so special and it's also unique. But it's good to go to other countries that are maybe uh, also have a long culture, uh, perhaps analogous in the sense of our, the Arab world with its long culture and deep, thick, rich culture, and compare that or countries that have a similar level of development and to see that some of the problems that we think of as Chinese problems are really problems of development or of modernity. The religious issue, for example, that I described uh, can also apply to Turkey, to parts of the Arab world. You know, you're going through this terrible thing. Your country's being beaten up by the, by the West. You turn on your religion. You attack your religion. You say it's your beliefs and your ideas are backwards. That's what's holding us back. It's, it's, it, you find that in other parts of the world, too. And I think that's good to sort of break out of the China ghetto, if you can't talk about that. Can we take another question from the floor? Sorry about the tie. Um, my name's Alan, and I was just interested if you could speak to uh, the question of when you write this kind of journalism or writing, um, you are telling the story of someone who's quite ordinary and doesn't have any way of speaking with the world. And I just wonder if you could talk about kind of how you dealt with that as a practical matter in terms of working with the people that you profiled in your stories. Um, well, I think one of the the joys actually of writing about ordinary people is that they don't have their shtick down to deal with writers and journalists. So, you know, if you're in the, I don't know, the U.S. and you want to talk to someone in the Department of Agriculture, you know, there's a press secretary and there's a procedure and you get your call-in number and you have 15 minutes. And, um, you know, I mean, I think you just try to, you know, one one of the sort of things I, I heard or read quite a while ago is, so if somebody's going to spend a lot of, if you're going to be asking someone to spend a lot of time with you, right, which if you're writing out someone you do, then you've got to be entertaining or interesting or at least fun to hang out with because otherwise they're going to get sick of you and this is this is going to be a bad thing for both of you. So do you so tell jokes? I think, <laughs> I think, you know, in a harmonica. sense, I mean, you try to develop some kind of a friendship with the person and, and, you know, just sort of attach yourself to them. I know that sounds sort of strange. Um, 
And there's different ways of uh, of doing this. There's a woman named Kate Boo who uh, was a writer for the Washington Post and then for the New Yorker and has written a lovely book about India called Beyond the Beautiful Forevers. And when she was talking about the way that she reported on poverty in the U.S., she said she wanted to try to make herself, after she got to know the person, when they were interacting with other people, sort of invisible, so that it wasn't just me saying, hey, Jeremy, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? But, Jeremy, can I follow you around and just to see how you negotiate your life? And, you know, after a while, if Jeremy, you know, gets the sense that I'm an okay person to do this, then you just, you know, it's sort of like, you know, being a camera following someone around. And I think it's... It allows you to capture a lot of the serendipity. Um, I know I'm sort of rambling on, but just different thoughts. But, I mean, often when you ask someone a question, unless it's a factual question, it's not that they lie or they don't tell you what's true, but often you'll find a better answer to the question just observing them or watching them make decisions or hearing them talk to friends or relatives or seeing what they do in a moment of stress. And so you just try to spend time with someone and try to, you know, keep eyes out for sort of the unexpected moments that in some way shed light on these, these broader questions. Do you want to answer that in or? Well, no, I, so to just to echo sort of what you said, I think the, the worst people to profile are, are celebrities and major political figures because they've given their answers so many times before that you just feel like you're, you're punching a button and getting a tape-recorded answer back spewed out at you. And, and uh, you know, quote-unquote ordinary people are often <laughs> yeah, much more candid and, and interesting. Of course, sometimes when you're talking to people really at the grassroots uh, in China, there's well, a very practical problem is often dialect. Um, and then another practical problem is people aren't always that introspective. I mean, I've, uh, or because they're often maybe just a very simple person with a low educational level, uh, they haven't uh, thought a lot about their life. Sometimes when you ask them a question, it's sort of the first time they thought about that. So that's why it's, it is really important to spend a lot of time with people and you, you find out people will give you answers, but, um, but it doesn't often come that quickly. How do you deal with the sort of um, issue of how much of a person's life do you write about? Uh, um, you know, if you're, if you're following somebody around or spending a lot of time with them. I mean, there, there are times, particularly in some of the, the books, uh, I mean, even Peter Hessler's books, for example, the, the middle one, the Oracle Bones, there were some moments in that book <clears throat> where I read it and I thought, this is really interesting, but man, you know, if I was that guy and I read this book, <laughs> I would be pissed. <laughs> Particularly since they're being translated into Chinese now. I mean, uh, and not to single out him by any means. This is a problem for any journalist or, p or person who writes about living actual people. But how do you, uh, where do you draw the line between invading somebody's privacy and writing something that's interesting? Well, I just let it all hang out. Uh, I don't know. No, I think you. Uh, well, you have to get people's permission. I think, uh, of course, the problem is that after you've spent so long with somebody, as Christina said, when you've you've become invisible to them, kind of, they may say things that, uh, yeah, that that they didn't mean to say. And I think you have to be fair to people. That if you've if you found out something, uh, I I wrote about somebody, and I, it, for example, and it turned out that she was a supposedly, I thought, celibate religious practitioner and had a 20-year-old son. Uh, 
And it was an enormously complicated question. I didn't put it in the profile because I couldn't figure it all out. And I she had, was supposed to be celibate, but she yeah, had a nun. Son. She's supposed all to be right. nun. She's a nun. Um, and so you begin to think, well, this is going to be a really complicated issue. And I'm going to figure that out. But for the initial article that I wrote, I am not going to put it in. And I would only put it in a book if I had talked about it with her. But I don't feel that I can really invade her privilege because she's made a, an effort to keep it kind of private, you know, keep it, I don't want to say a secret because a lot of the people know about it, but it's certainly not um, part of her public persona. She's not hypocritical. It was just something that happened when she was very young. And so I think that you have to think about those things. But you do get permission from people, do you, before you... you uh, have- yeah, well, I mean, as a, book, basically. As a you know, journalist, I mean, you can only, uh, you have to identify yourself, what you're doing. You can't sort of just, you know, hang out with somebody and then put the recording function on your iPhone, you know, and then sort of record everything and then yeah, transcribe see, and that. That's what we bloggers that be, do, yeah, yeah. That would be <laughs> incredibly unethical, by just unfair. I mean, anybody... Mm. That would be but not everybody gets permission before they put stuff into books. I mean, you know, particularly people who don't, present themselves as journalists, but then go on to write about it, no? I mean, how standard is that, do you think? Know. Well, I think, I know academics have also code, codes of ethics that mm-hmm. they have to follow in some cases, in some, some parts of the social sciences, they have to anonymize people uh, when they're writing about them so they're not exploiting them. You know, there's just a concern in some disciplines about exploiting people. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think it would be... You have to put yourself in the other person's shoes also and think, what would it be like? But on the other hand, I think, ultimately, you owe, you're you writing for your reader. You know? You're not writing for your sources. This is the thing you have to keep in mind. You're not writing to be approved by the Taoist priest. You're writing to illuminate something for the reader. So if I make him out to be a little bit funny or silly in one particular part of the story, you know, I'm not going to apologize or... I mean, I think one of the questions, I mean, and it really is a sort of, you're right, this is one of these murky areas where you wish there were, like, the rules, and I think every person sort of, you know, tries to make the best sort of moral judgment they can um, and and might, you know, say that the way that someone else handled something, as you pointed out with your example, you know, you could could call it into question, and, um, but I think one of the questions to ask is sort of what's the purpose of the overall piece of writing, be it a, the book or an article. And, you know, I mean, in the case of Oracle Bones, it's, you know, to sort of show a portrait of contemporary China, and that's a huge, you know, that's a, that's a huge purpose. For, for things that I've done, usually, I mean, it's about an environmentalist, or it's about, I mean, it's about someone who has a mission, or is a, a you know, trying to, is an example of someone caught in some kind of a uh, you know, a problem or a contradiction or what have you. And there's all sorts of information you gather that it's extraneous. I mean, their feet smell or, you know, whatever. And you don't put it in, it's not because you're censoring it, but, you know, it's just it's not relevant. And so I think in the course of writing something, you might identify some questions that you feel like, this is really relevant, and how am I going to handle it? And then I think you would have to have a discussion with someone. And if it's not relevant, then, you know... Um, you know what I mean? It's but it, but I think there's it's, there's like some points you're like okay th- these are things I have to deal with and this is just you know if I if I put it in and it's a funny little joke and if I 
you know, and, but potentially I'm getting someone in trouble or something, or if I don't put it in, I miss that joke. Well, you know, it's okay. Okay. Interesting characters. I think that's the, the perfect two-word combination to end our talk tonight. Thank you very, very much. Please give a warm round of applause to Anna and Christina. And Jeremy. Uh, and also, you, Jeremy. if you don't buy their book before you leave, there's a PSB van waiting below to check your visa and stuff. So I think the book is available on the front. It's also available. So please buy their book. <laughs> Thank you.